I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 69. It can be found in your pew Bibles on page 904. Psalm 69. <coughs> Here now the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters, the floods engulf me. I am worn out calling for help, my throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are my enemies without cause, those who seek to destroy me. I am forced to restore what I did not steal. You know my folly, O God. My guilt is not hidden from you. May those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me. O Lord, the Lord Almighty, may those who seek you not be put to shame because of me, O God of Israel. For I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. I'm a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my own mother's sons. For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. When I weep and fast, I must endure scorn. When I put on sackcloth, people make sport of me. Those who sit at the gate mock me, and I am the song of the drunkards. But I pray to you, O Lord, in the time of your favor. In your great love, O God, answer me with your sure salvation. Rescue me from the mire. Do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me, from the deep waters. Do not let the floodwaters engulf me, or the depths swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, out of the goodness of your love, and your great mercy turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I am in trouble. Come near and rescue me. Redeem me because of my foes. You know how I am scorned, disgraced, and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar from my thirst. May the table set before them become a snare. May it become retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Pour out your wrath on them. Let your fierce anger overtake them. May their place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in their tents. For they persecute those you wound and talk about the pain of those you hurt. Charge them with crime upon crime. Do not let them share in your salvation. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. I am in pain and distress. May your salvation, O God, protect me. I will praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with its horns and hooves. The poor will see and be glad. You who seek God, may, may your hearts live. The Lord hears the needy and does not despise his captive people. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and all that move in them, for God will save Zion and rebuild the cities of Judah. Then people will settle there and possess it. The children of his servants will inherit it, and those who love his name will dwell there. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. 
All right, for all the little ones out there, if you can come up to me afterwards and tell me something specific about the sermon, not like it's about Jesus. I have a treat for you, okay? So pay attention, and then afterwards you can come tell me something uh, that you remember from the sermon, and I'll give you a treat, okay? Uh, anybody here rem- uh, remember or know the story that's behind the movie Chariots of Fire? You probably know the song. This is the great slow motion, beautiful Chariots of Fire music, right? Well, the story is about a man named Eric Liddell. And uh, this is kind of timely since the Olympics are going on right now, and there's probably all kinds of Olympic events happening at this moment. Well, Eric Liddell refused to compete in an Olympic event uh, because it was on the Sabbath. At one point, uh, the Prince of Wales said to Liddell, Hey, man, there are times when we're asked to make sacrifices in the name of that loyalty. And without them, our allegiance is worthless. As I see it for you, this is such a time. Basically, he was saying, hey, you know, show loyalty to your country. Um, Make a sacrifice. Do this one, you know, Olympic event on the Sabbath. But Liddell, he wouldn't compromise. And this is what he said. He said, God made countries. God makes kings and the rules by which they govern. And those rules say that the Sabbath is his, and I, for one, intend to keep it that way. Uh, This movie and story are so good because they're about a man standing for his convictions, even when so many are against him. It's a story about a man whose first allegiance is to God's glory and God's kingdom. And that's a lot about what Psalm 69 is saying. Um, Psalm 69 could be summarized like this. Our passion for God's glory and kingdom can evoke misunderstanding, hatred, and even persecution from others. Our passion for God's glory and kingdom can evoke misunderstanding, hatred, and even persecution from others. If you read Psalm 69, much of it is a lament from David, uh, who seems to be experiencing some kind of circumstances where uh, he feels overwhelmed, uh, almost like a flood. And these circumstances uh, include uh, enemies that are mocking him, that are mistreating him. Um, These uh, circumstances include uh, those who are coming against him, right? Um, And we're going to find out why is it that they've come against him. So it's it's quite a long psalm. What I'm going to do, uh, I try my best to do, is summarize um, the way that the psalm breaks down as much as possible. And then uh, at the end, I have a variety of sort of applications or points that I want to draw out of Psalm 69. Uh, So our points this morning is first, uh, point, condition. Verses 1 through 12 express the psalmist's condition, the place that he's in, the way that he feels, right? Um, Where he's at, the life circumstances that brought about this expression of worship, this prayer in Psalm 69. Uh, The second point is petition. Verses Verses 13 through 29 um, are largely the way that uh, in this psalm, uh, the circumstances that David has put him in have led him to this prayer, this petition that he asks of God, okay? Um, and then the third point is commendation or uh, a, a call to worship. Verses 30 through 36 at the end of the psalm, uh, it turns to a call to worship, a call to um, worship. 
And then the fourth point, of course, is going to be application. We're going to look at uh, a variety of the verses in Psalm 69 and some things that we can draw out of that, okay? So the first point, condition. Uh, verses 1 through 4 describe metaphorically uh, the psalmist's troubles. Uh, it, there is as if this psalmist is in the midst of a flood. The psalmist is overwhelmed by the waters. Um, flood language in the Old Testament is descriptive. It's descriptive of a time of that uh, brings destruction, a time that brings death, uh, just like the Genesis flood. But uh, the flood can also be like in the book of Jonah when he's swallowed by the whale and brought down into the depths of the water, an expression of death itself, Sheol, the grave. And that much of the language that David uses here of being overwhelmed by the waters, being in the deep, being in the floods, um, is expressive of that sense of death approaching, that sense of great um, despair surrounding him, okay? Um, and then in verses 5 through 12, this is a review of the opposition uh, that he's facing. Uh, David here expresses that he knows that he is a sinner. He knows that he is not perfect. He knows that he is a flawed person, and he expresses to God that, that he prays that his flaws and his character and his... Um, the way that he makes mistakes would not bring shame upon God, would not bring disgrace to other people who trust in the Lord, who trust in, in, in him. Um, and he expresses why he believes these things are coming about. We're going to talk more about that particular section in the application point, okay? Uh, the second point is petition, verses 13 to 29. You see in verses 13, David says, but God, despite these circumstances, God, despite that I feel overwhelmed, in this flood that I feel surrounded by the waters, despite that I feel that I am going to be, that I'm being mistreated, that I'm being, uh, that I'm surrounded by enemies, I pray to you. I pray to you and I pray that you will rescue me from this mire. You will rescue me from these floodwaters. You will answer me, Lord, um, out of your great mercy. You will come near to me. You will bring all these, um, these things that are in my life uh, to a place that they, they'll bring glory to you, Lord. I trust you in this uh, situation. Um, in verse 19 through 21, um, we see more an application of, of, of this prayer. Uh, David, is, um, <laughs> David is saying, uh, another review of the opposition, he's saying, uh, I'm scorned, disgraced, all my enemies are around me. Scorn has broken my heart. They put gall in my food. They, bring vinegar, they give me vinegar for my thirst. Um, and then verses 22 to 29, David makes a prayer for judgment on these enemies, uh, for judgment on these people who are bringing these circumstances into his life, who are mistreating him, who are saying he's done things he has not done, um, and that's what we call an imprecation. Uh, we've been going through a sermon series on the Psalms, um, a variety of different types of Psalms in the Psalter, and the one that we're looking at this morning, uh, we're looking at it because it includes imprecation, and imprecation basically is a curse. Um, there's blessings in the Bible, and there are curses in the Bible. And what uh, David is praying for here is that he's praying that God would bring justice. God would bring judgment to these people, these enemies that have surrounded these enemies that are mistreating him. And in verses 22 to 29, he prays for these things in quite shocking ways. In fact, it's not very often uh, that we as a people of God get to sing, Lord, may you blot them from your book of life uh, together when we, when we worship. All right, but here it is in the Psalter. We're going to ask some questions later in the application 
uh, portion of this sermon of what do we do with imprecations like this, curses like this in the Bible. Uh, now that Jesus has come, how do we make sense of them? How do we, uh, uh, is it okay for us as the people of God to sing what we sang out of the Psalter this morning? Lord, vent, bring your vengeance upon them. Bring your judgment upon them. May you blot them from your book of life. Are we saying that this morning? Is, is it okay for us to sing that? Um, those are questions we're going to ask later. And then the third point, David moves into uh, a commendation. There's a big transition in verse 30. Uh, he says, personally, I will praise God's name in song. And he expresses the importance of, um, of heart religion over external religion. Um, glorify him with thanksgiving. This is going to please the Lord more than an ox, more than a sacrifice. And the humble, the poor, will see that uh, my heart is after the Lord and this will make them glad. Um, and then in verse 34 through 36, we see what is, uh, through thir 36, we see what is probably most likely uh, an addendum to the Psalter that was added to this particular song uh, following the return from exile or maybe even during the time of exile to express that what the people of Israel as a congregation were experiencing the trials and the tribulations, the judgment that they received from God that cast them out of the land felt a lot like what David was describing, um, the way that they were surrounded by the waters, the way they were surrounded by enemies. Um, and, and then verse 34 and following, they're expressing that all the earth should praise the Lord, but they're also expressing that great hope that they have that God would save them, God would bring them back to Zion, to the, the city of God, um, and that they would live there and possess that land for all time. Um, so, um, that's the way that the uh, psalm itself breaks down. Um, now, I would like to um, transition into a, a time of basically application, just looking at a variety of points um, that we can draw out of this particular psalm. Um, and the first thing that I want to do is uh, tell you that Psalm 69 includes many quotations that are drawn from it in the New Testament. Um, we would call Psalm 69 a messianic psalm. Now I'm going to say that the entire book of Psalms is messianic, but this one is in particular because there are direct quotations that are applied to Jesus in the New Testament. And we can look at a few of those. Verse 4 in um, Psalm 69 says, Those uh, who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. In John chapter 15, verse 25, Jesus applies this particular verse to himself. Jesus says, this is a characteristic of my life, just like it was of my forefather, David. Uh, those who hate me without, without reason. There are those who hate me without reason. Now, um, unlike David, Jesus actually is sinless and perfect. And so all those who hated Jesus hated him without reason. Now, David gives a little bit more of a, of a, of a, a more fleshed out perspective because unlike uh, his um, descendant Jesus, David is not perfect. He's a sinner, right? In verse 9, the first part of verse 9 in this psalm, the zeal for your house consumes me, is quoted in John chapter 2 verse 17 when Jesus goes into the temple and he cleanses the temple. He clears the temple. 
Um, he makes a whip and he clears it of all the money changers. He, he flips the tables. Uh, um, that moment. And, and uh, then John says this little note in, in verse 2, or in chapter 2, verse 17. He says, following Jesus' um, resurrection, they remembered this and said, oh yeah, that fulfilled the word, the zeal for the house of the Lord consumes me. And that's how it was applied. Verse 9b, the second part, uh, the insults of those who insult you fall on me. Uh, uh, Paul applies to Jesus in Romans chapter 15, verse 3. Um, Paul applies that perspective or that particular verse to Jesus in Romans 15, verse 3. Um, also, verses 22 through 23 in Psalm 69. May the table set before them become a snare. May it become retribution and trap. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Paul applies to the people of Israel in his day in Romans chapter 11. Uh, if you know what is being taught in Romans chapter 9 through chapter 11, the big question that Paul is trying to answer is, why is it that so many Gentiles are coming to faith in Jesus Christ, even though Jesus Christ is the Jewish Messiah, and all these Jews are not believing. And so Paul applies uh, verses 22 through 23 of uh, Psalm 69 to the Jewish people and says, there's a judicial hardness going on right now in the people of Israel. The people of Israel are not believing right now because God is making it so. God has hardened their hearts in this judicial fashion. And God, um, one day, is going to take away that judicial hardness and many of the Jews are going to come to faith. In large numbers, they're going to see, finally, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. <coughs> Excuse me. But right now, they have this judicial blindness. Um, verse 21, um, uh, they put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. We can see as an application to Jesus during his crucifixion. They gave him gall mixed with vinegar, uh, wine mixed with vinegar. But also, this is applied to Judah in Acts chapter 1. Verse 20, um, the Jude, or not Judah, uh, Judas, um, in, his, uh, in his betrayal of the, uh, in his exit, exit from the, uh, the number of the apostles. Acts chapter 1, verse 20. Uh, speaking of judicial blindness, the people of God and uh, Judas, I'd like to take a moment to, uh, to talk about a specific case of what I would say is uh, judicial blindness in the case of Judas. Now, um, many people kind of take Judas in the New Testament as your typical bad guy character. He's there so the plot can move forward. He's there so that he can betray Jesus and we can move forward with this crucifixion. Um, but Judas is a person of history. He's a person of a particular context. He's a person of a particular um, religious background. He's a person of a particular ethnic background. Um, and Judas, I think, is the prime example of what this judicial blindness is in Romans chapter 11. Now, we don't have um, direct scripture telling us what Judas's motivation was for. But have you ever wondered, have you ever wondered why Judas went and he got 30 silver coins um, to betray Jesus? And then after Jesus was taken into custody, Judas tried to return the money and then after uh, he tried to return the money, he went and he hanged himself. What's that all about? I mean, if what he wanted was money, he got that from, from the whole scenario. He got 
he got the money that they, they were offering him for his betrayal. Why is it that he went and killed himself? Why is it that he went and just gave up a life? Now, you can speculate, possibly, that the reason why he did this is because all of a sudden the guilt caught up to him. And it was a uh, worldly guilt. It wasn't a godly guilt. Um, or, uh, I have another suggestion. I believe that Judas tried to force the hand of Jesus. And Judas lived with Jesus. Judas knew that Jesus was powerful. Judas saw uh, Lazarus walk out of the grave. Judas saw people who were dead come back to life. Judas saw the feeding of the 5,000. Judas saw all the miraculous things that Jesus did. Judas knew that Jesus was a man blessed by God, given power by God. And Judas, like many other Jews of his day, believed that Jesus had come to get them out and un from underneath the tyranny of Rome, that, Judas had come, that Jesus had come as a political, kingly, earthly Messiah, and that uh, Jesus just needed to be given the opportunity to display his power. And so Judas tried to force the hand of Jesus. Judas thought to himself, maybe, if I betray Jesus and I put Jesus in a circumstance where he's forced to use his power, where he's forced to reveal himself, then Jesus will finally kick the Romans out, place himself as the king of Israel, and I won't just be the money bag candler for a little gang called Jesus and his disciples. I'll be the secretary of the treasury. That's a bigger money bag to pull from. Now, this isn't expressly said, okay? But... If Judas is like many other Jews of his time, he believed that this is what Jesus was to do. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Judas says, if I just give Jesus the opportunity, force his hand, he has to reveal his power. And then Judas saw Jesus get arrested. And Judas saw Jesus like a silent sheep before the slaughterers, not even speak up, receive Lashes receive punishment. If Judas saw Jesus take the crimes that he was accused of and say nothing and be led to the cross and die on the cross, he just couldn't understand that. He couldn't understand why Jesus, how all the powers that he saw Jesus do, why isn't he revealing himself? Why isn't he? And that's why if he just he can't handle it. He goes and he hangs himself. Judas is a victim of the same judicial blindness of many of the people of Israel today. They can't see how a crucified Savior can be their Messiah. They can't see how their Messiah could be a lamb led to the slaughter. I'd like to mention another thing. Of course, verse, um, verse 9 is applied to Jesus in the New Testament. In John chapter 2, zeal for your house consumes me. Um, but if you see what is going on in David's life pertaining to this verse, there's a very good application to us. In verse 5, David does something. 
He says, you know my folly, O God. My guilt is not hidden from you. He expresses that he knows that we cannot hide from the omniscience of God. God sees all. God knows all. God sees our heart. He knows that we are sinners. And David does not hide that. Verse 6, he says, May those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me. O Lord, the Lord Almighty, may those who seek you not be put to shame because of me. For I endure scorn for your sake. Shame covers my face. I'm a stranger to my brothers. So on and so forth. But verse 4, he says, Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs on my head. So what, what is David talking about? Well, what, what he's expressing is that there is a kind of righteousness that Christians have. We could call it a zeal. We have a zeal for the kingdom of God and for God's glory. We have a zeal. But oftentimes, um, even though we have this zeal, even though we have this passion for God's glory and God's kingdom, we still stumble. We still fall. Um, and in a particular application in David's life is he's the king of Israel. He's got a platform, all right? And, uh, and if he stumbles and he falls, that stumbling and that fall, that mistake, is a cause for uh, others to uh, mock, right? It would be like if, um, if, if we had a, uh, a good uh, Midwestern uh, Christian lobbyist uh, that worked in, in, in D.C., fighting for uh, um, con- uh, conservative family values and so on and so forth. And, uh, and you know, he, he's always fighting for these things that are, are, are in line with the Bible. And then we find out one day um, that uh, it was discovered he went to, a, 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 he, he was found in a shady place. Okay? And this isn't something that's characteristic of him. This is a mistake, right? Well, then what, what happens next, Okay? What happens next is CNN, MSNBC, NBC, they are all plastering all over the news how this good Christian guy was found doing this non-Christian thing, right? Right? It it reminds me a a lot of what uh, Mike Pence went through when he was vice president. Oh, he won't go to eat. Uh, eat lunch with a woman by himself. Let's mock him and make fun of him. Ha 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 ha! Right? And that's not even a sin, in my opinion. <laughs> that's just his policy. So we have this, um, we have this zeal, we have this righteousness, right? But sometimes we stumble. Sometimes we fall. And, and even here in in the scriptures, even here in Psalm sixty nine, David says, "Those who sit at the gate mock me." Well, those who sit at the gate are like the uh, are like the, uh, the the high profile men of the city. They're like the ones who come and judge the cases, right? David says, "I am the song of the drunkards. I, I'm the I am the laughing stock of late night comedians. I am the people that they gather around, and when they're drunk, they laugh about me and they sing songs about me, right? Well, this is what I want us to know about the, the Christian life. What I want us to know about um, situations and circumstances like that, because we ourselves." may not be high-profile people like David. We may not be high-profile people like Mike Pence. We may not be high-profile people like, like some of these uh, thing people are. But there may, be a chan- uh, there may be a circumstance in which we fall into sin.
And because of that sin, it gives an occasion for people to, who are not Christians to mock us, to look down upon us. But this is what I want you to understand. Sin is the occasion for the mocking that's happening, right? But righteousness is the reason. You see, the reason why everybody in the news wanted to make fun of Mike Pence because he said he wouldn't go out to eat with a woman by himself is not because he chooses not to go out to a woman by himself, but it's because the rest of Mike Pence is expressing himself as this righteous Christian man who does not want to stumble, does not want to give an occasion for sin. You understand that, right? And in David's life, in David's life, he stumbled, he fell, right? And this is giving late-night comedians an opportunity to make fun of him. This is giving uh, the drunkards in the, in, the, in the bars opportunity to, to, to make fun of him. This is giving high-profile political people in the kingdom of Israel opportunity to make fun of him. But it's not the sin. It's not the reason why they're making fun of him. The rest of his righteous life is the reason why they're making fun of him. Is the reason why they're mocking him. So, our passion for God's glory and kingdom can evoke misunderstanding, hatred, and even persecution from others. And they're watching you. They're wanting you to stumble. They're wanting you to have this little tiny slip-up so they can get all onto you about how Oh, you declare yourself to be so perfect and so good, but look at you. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. You, you're just like us. Blah, 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 blah. It's the rest of our lives. It is the, um, the circumstance of sin that it gives the occasion for the mockery. But it's the righteousness that is the reason. It's because we claim the name of Christ that is the reason. It's because we have a passion, a zeal for God's glory and kingdom that we are seen as fish in a bowl to look at and to laugh at, right? So don't let that steal your zeal. Don't let that take away your passion and your glory. Because one of the things that David does and it's powerful. And it's one of the things that Paul does, and it's powerful. It's this. That David knows at the end of the day, God knows. God is the one who judges. God is the one who will vindicate. God is the one who sees. You know, Paul, he, he, received, lots of, uh, he received lots of accusations, lots of criticisms as an apostle. Paul was seen as somebody who was weak and was not good or mighty and was not very good speaker and all these things. And in the book of Corinthians, Paul says, you can say what you want, but at the end of the day, I know God is the one who judges me. And I place myself into the hands of God, and I do not place myself into the hands of men. That is something that's supposed to comfort us as the people of God, even if we receive mockery, even if we are accused of doing things we have not done, even if we receive misunderstanding, hatred, and even persecution. 
But what are we supposed to do with these, um, these imprecations, okay? Because David does not um, only appeal to God to redeem him and save him from of these circumstances, from these enemies, but David makes a very specific application um, in terms of God saving him. And what David says is, Lord, judge my enemies. Lord, bring judgment and condemnation. And so I want us to think about how we're supposed to handle these imprecations. David, in many ways, in Psalm 69, asked for the Lord to bring upon these people what had happened to him. Um, he uh, was thirsty, and so he says, may their table be a snare for them, become a trap for them. He was being placed in the dark, and so he says, may their eyes be darkened so they cannot see. Um, he was experiencing a flood around him, so he says, Lord, pour out your wrath on them. Let your fierce anger overtake them. He, because of them, had lost friends and family. And so he says, Lord, may their place be deserted. May no one dwell in their tents. Um, he says, for they persecute those you wound and talk about the pain of those you hurt. So charge them with crime after crime. Uh, blot them from your book of life and let them not be listed with the righteous. These are very strong words. Well, one of the things that we need to um, talk about here is the often... Uh, false dichotomy that we have in our day and age between what is often called the Old Testament God of wrath and, and the New Testament God of love and peace. Right? So many people will say, um, hey, you know that Old Testament God, he's really, um, he's a really mean guy. And somewhere between Malachi and Matthew, somebody was able to give God some meds and now he's leveled out and now we've got this hippie God of peace and love. Okay? So that's, that's um, an extreme representation of it, but there's a lot of people who think that way. There's a lot of people think that somehow what Jesus did when he came is somehow appeased God's wrath and made God nicer now. And there's a way that we can talk about God in that fashion, the work, in the work of Jesus Christ in that fashion, which is not appropriate, right? So how are we supposed to deal with these imprecations? Well, the first thing we need to know is that the Old Testament God and the New Testament God are the same God. Uh, the same person, David, who said in Psalm 69, Lord, may they be blotted out of the book of life, okay? It's the same one who inspired Paul's words, who said, even if an angel or somebody else comes and preaches to you a gospel that we've not preached to you, may they be anathema. May they be cursed. May they be cut off, Okay? The same God in the Old Testament who killed the Canaanites and the Amalekites, women, children, fathers, men, right? is the same God in the New Testament who, when was lied to by the Holy Spirit, when, the, when, when Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit, boom, dropped dead. The same God in the Old Testament who brought wrath in these profound ways is the same God in the New Testament when we read in the book of Revelation that the smoke of all those who are destroyed goes up before God forever and ever. Okay? The imprecations that David is saying here express that kind of judgment and wrath 
that God is still like. He's still like that. And judgment and wrath is a serious thing. If you are uncomfortable with these imprecations here in the Bible, then may I remind you that at the end of this age, when Jesus comes again to judge the living and the dead, those who do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ shall be cast into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth where they will experience eternal conscious torment forever because they have sinned against a holy, righteous God, an eternal God, okay? So that's one thing to note. Another thing to note about David's imprecations here is that he is not saying, I'm going to blot you out from the book of life. I'm going to charge you with crime upon crime. I am going to, pers- I am going to bring great harm upon you. Okay, that's what we call vigilanteism. Okay? Now, we all like a good vigilante story. Because somewhere in us, we believe that justice should be done. You know those vigilante movies where you watch and somebody, uh, somebody's life is ruined. Let's say their wife and their kids are killed because that's usually what vigilante movies are. Their wife and their kid and their family is killed, right? And the law doesn't do anything about it. The person who did this is never caught. The person who did this is never brought to justice, right? And so this is what the vigilante does. He takes things into his own hands. And he says, I'm going to bring justice. And that sense of relief that you get at the end is he got his revenge. That person who did that horrible thing, he, they got what they deserve, right? And, and somewhere deep in us, we know that, that in this life, not everyone's going to receive the justice they deserve. Um, and so um, we like when stories end where there's a sense of restoration. There's a sense of justice that's been done, right? But as Christians, we're not called to be vigilantes. And Paul talks about this in the book of Romans when he says, Do not take vengeance into your own hands. Rather, give it to God because God says vengeance is mine. That is what David is doing. He is not being a vigilante. He is saying, God, you bring justice. God, you bring your wrath. God, you, the Lord of all the earth, shall you not do what is right? And there are situations and circumstances in this life where injustice is being done. In this life where people are being tortured, persecuted, murdered. In this life where those who have done horrible things go without getting caught, go without being given the proper justice, without being punished for crimes or arrested or whatever it may be. And isn't it so wonderful that God has given us words to pray in those circumstances and situations? That we have here a prayer, a prayer that we would turn to God and call upon Him to bring vengeance, to bring justice, to bring judgment. And not take things into our own hands. But to give it to the Lord. To give it to the Lord. Okay? Part of living in this life as those who are zealous for the kingdom of God and for his glory means that we're going to be at the odd end 
of receiving, misunderstanding, hatred, even persecution. And in those times, here in God's very own word, we're being told that it's appropriate to pray that the Lord would bring justice and judgment. Does that mean that it will happen in this life time? Does that mean that somehow God will cause some freak accident to happen where the person that has done you wrong gets in a car accident and dies? I, it could be. But most likely what it means is we are giving up our need for justice in the here and now. And we're saying, God, we know that ultimately you will bring perfect justice and restoration in your time. And that's what prayer is. Prayer is giving up what we do not have control over and giving it to the Lord. Our passion for God's glory and kingdom can evoke misunderstanding, hatred, and even persecution from others. And sometimes that means that we're going to want to pray prayers like David prayed here. Lord, may their table set before them become a snare. Lord, may their place be deserved. Let there be no one to dwell in their tents. For they persecute those you wound. And talk about the pain of those you hurt. And we've been given words to pray those prayers. In an appropriate way, in an appropriate fashion. And trusting the Lord to do what is right. To bring justice, to bring mercy the way um, that the Lord himself alone can do. And so I pray um, that all of us could be like Eric Liddell. Maybe it's not about the Sabbath. Maybe we're not Olympic athletes, you know. I'm certainly not an Olympic athlete. I've got about 13 days before I do a Tough mutter, and I'm hoping that I don't, like, sprain myself, sprain an ankle or something like that beforehand, you know. We'll see how that goes. But I pray that we have the same kind of zeal and passion that he had for God's glory and for God's kingdom, even if it means that we receive mockery, even if it evokes misunderstanding and hatred and even persecution from others, and that we would entrust ourselves to the Lord, knowing that he is the one who judges, he is the one who sees, he is the one who will vindicate us, and he is the one who will bring vengeance when it's appropriate in his time. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for this psalm. Thank you for this prayer. And we pray, Lord, that we would see in this psalm uh, Jesus Christ, our perfect Savior, who's taking your vengeance against our sin away from us. Uh, we, we praise you for that, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that those who are blind to Jesus Christ would have that blindness removed so that they may come to faith in him. Uh, we pray, Heavenly Father, that, um, when, that we would have a zeal for your house, that we would have a, a desire to, to live for your kingdom and for your glory, even if it brings uh, persecution, misunderstanding, hatred, and uh, directed toward us. Uh, to know ultimately that these things are because of what you're doing in our lives and that you will... Um, you will bring us through those things. And we pray, Heavenly Father, uh, that we would um, entrust ourselves to you in all these things uh, and know that you are doing a great work in us and that one day you're going to bring that eternal kingdom and where there is no more sin, there is no more injustice and we will be with you forever and we will worship you in the land that was slain 
throughout all eternity. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.